0: See website for details.
1: Welcome back to the second episode of the Bukari Sellers Podcast. The first episode was so amazing. We had Deshaun Watson and Alec Cavana. Please go back and check that out. Thank you to everyone who downloaded and Uh, subscribe. Please continue to spread the word about this amazing podcast. We have some great guests coming up uh, in the upcoming days and weeks. Today's show with Tiffany Cross is going to be outstanding. I want to really, really dive into... Uh, what's going on in the world of politics today, particularly the role that black women are going to play, not just played in the primary, but are going to play in this general election and, and figure out what the landscape is and some of her amazing new things she has coming up. I'll let her share with you some of those things, but also she has her new book, Say It Louder, which comes out next week. So please go cut that as well. I have to give a special shout out to Kenneth Whalem. Kenneth is my brother, man. I absolutely love Kenneth Whalum and everything they do over at Broken Land Records. The intro song to the Bukari Sellers podcast is Might Not Be Okay uh, by Kenneth Whalum and uh, Big Crit. So go cop that, go stream that, listen to the words, man. That song is so dope and so evergreen. So shout out to Kenneth Whalum as well. Um, Today is a beautiful day. And my last shout out uh, during this introduction goes to Daniel Cameron. I want all of us to give a special shout out to Daniel Cameron. He is the attorney general for the state of Kentucky and he just got engaged. So because he just got engaged, I want you to do me a favor and call the Kentucky attorney general's criminal investigations line at 866-524-3672 and tell them congratulations to attorney general Cameron and also let them know that we need to arrest the people who murdered Brianna Taylor and have them charged. So please give him that uh, amazing, amazing engagement gift from the Bakari Sellers podcast. Look, guys, um, today's show is going to be one that we delve into the news of the day. And one of the things that, that I want to talk about and one of the things that we have to unpack is how Joe Biden became our nominee, how we got to this point. Um, and I always tell people that the winner of the Democratic primary is going to be the person that my mama and her friends support. What that means is black women of a certain age usually propel the nominee and usually are the ones in November um, who will determine whether or not the Democratic nominee has a chance. And so Joe Biden has to do absolutely everything he can uh, to get the base of the party riled up, to get them excited. We'll talk about what that looks like and whether or not he has to choose a black female uh, VP. I just talked about this recently with my good friend Margaret Hoover on uh, PBS Firing Line. Take a listen. There are people who are watching to say, oh, Joe Biden has the black vote anyway. They're going to show up and vote. You know what? There's an element of truth to that. My mama is still going to vote for Joe Biden. However, if it's Marsha Fudge or Val Demings or Susan Rice or Kamala Harris as VP, she's not just going to show up to vote. She's going to stand up every Sunday from the time they're announced, announcing it at church. She's going to make sure the church van is gassed up. She's going to go get her cousins that don't vote often. She's going to be on the phone with all her sorority sisters, and the base will be activated. That's the difference between winning and losing. Four million people voted for Barack Obama in 2012 and did not I vote in 2016, a third of which were black. And so we have to make sure we go get those million plus voters. And, you know, guys, when I when I think about this, man, for me, um, I was just doing a I had a event, a book event with Kamala Harris, who's a good friend of mine. And everybody knows that when they listen to this show, they They know that I'm a big Kamala Harris supporter. I'm even rocking the Kamala Harris hoodie today. And Kamala said something that stuck out to me about the way that we engage Black women in particular in the voting process. And she said that Black women are tired of simply being thanked. And over the past 24, 48 hours on social media, I came across an amazing clip from another fellow South Carolinian, Viola Davis, that speaks to this point that during this new electoral season. Uh, Joe Biden is going to have to engage this base. He's going to have to talk to these issues because for far too long, um, Black women have not been uh, treated and given what they're worth.
2: I got the Oscar, I got the Emmy, I got the two Tonys, I've done Broadway, I've done off-Broadway, I've done TV, I've done film, I've done all of it. I have a career that's probably comparable to Meryl Streep, Julianne Moore, Let's Sigourney Weaver, they all came out of Yale, they came out of Juilliard, they came out of NYU, they had the same path as me. And yet, I am nowhere near them, not as far as money, not as, as far as job opportunities, nowhere close to it. But I have to get on that phone and people say, you're a black Meryl Streep. (laughs) (laughs) There is no one like you. Okay, then if there's no one like me, you think I'm that you pay me what I'm worth.
1: You give me what I'm worth. So there's no doubt that, you know, I think that this election is going to be determined on one very, very simple thing. And shout out to my brother Bill Simmons. I think we talked about this on his show, but four million voters. Four million voters voted for Barack Obama in 2012 and did not vote for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Of those four million, over one third were African-American. And so Joe Biden is going to have to do something to engage the base of the Democratic Party to turn out. Because if they don't, uh, we have the danger of having another four years of Donald Trump. This week, Donald Trump tweeted about uh, he retweeted supporters of his shouting out white power. And we have some of my friends on the right, including Ben Shapiro and others who have kind of twisted themselves into a pretzel defending this action. Listen to what Ben just said this week about the president retweeting white power.
0: Now, I think what actually happened here is the same thing that happens to a lot of people on Twitter. When you are bored, you just start retweeting things. And when you retweet things, you don't always watch the video all the way to the end. And President Trump, as we know, has the attention span of a nap. Right? The, the, the president of the United States, is. Not, I mean, he literally will not read presidential briefings that are put on his desk. They have to put them in bullet point form. And then he doesn't even read those. He'll ask for those to be shortened. OK, the man is not famous for sitting there and reading tomes of, of Winston Churchill. Right. So when it comes to watching videos online, my guess is he saw a person driving past with a Trump sign, and then he just retweeted it. Right. That, that is the most likely, likely explanation. Does anyone really think that President Trump Even even the people who think that, wow, he's a he's a racist dummy and all the even those people, do you think that he really would intentionally retweet a video in which somebody is shouting white power, which is what happens in this video?
1: So I can't even imagine this being a hill you want to die on. And I wanted to to contrast and kind of wrap up my introduction before we get to my homegirl Tiffany on this point. We've known this president of the United States to be racist. We knew he was racist before. Uh, He got elected. Hell, he came down the escalator in Trump Tower and said that Mexicans are rapists. Uh, We know that he and his family used to mark C on housing applications for color. Uh, We know that he was fined because of his discriminatory practices in Atlantic City. Um, You know, him retweeting somebody uh, who chants white power is what it is. We see from Ben Shapiro that others are going to wrap themselves in a pretzel just to defend this action. It's not enough just to say Donald Trump is racist. We already know that. Joe Biden is going to have to engage the base of the party. He's going to have to engage black women. I think Joe Biden has to have a black female vice president, whether or not it's Marsha Fudge, whether or not it's Kamala Harris, whether or not it's Susan Rice, whether or not it's Val Demings, because we can't play for anything less than keeps when it comes to November 3rd in this next general election. So, with all of that being said, I'm excited about today's show. We have none other than Tiffany Cross. You see her on MSNBC. She has a special opportunity this weekend. I'll let her talk to you about. uh, I have her book with me that we'll dive into, which is entitled Say It Louder. She's been around politics for so long. We'll delve into the issue of black women, the black agenda, voters, what Joe Biden has to do. This is going to be an awesome show. Uh, Next week on the holiday, shout out to, uh, uh, shout out to Kaya and shout out to Juliet and shout out to everybody who's a part of the Spotify team. I know they're going on vacation. Next week's show is so dope. It's gonna be an amazing show. I have Vince Carter and Antoine Jamison chatting with me about basketball, black fatherhood and everything else. So, and we, we were only supposed to tape about 30, 40 minutes, but we ended up going close to an hour. So you guys will enjoy that as well. Hey, give a, give a warm round of applause wherever you are listening to the Bukari Sellers podcast from our homegirl Tiffany Cross. So uh, welcome everybody to the Bakari Sellers Podcast. I have my homegirl on today. We're just going to talk shop a little bit. Uh, Tiffany Cross, ladies and gentlemen. Give her a round of applause wherever you are. She is amazing. Welcome to the Bakari Sellers Podcast, Tiffany.
2: Thank you, Bakari. I'm, I'm happy to be here. You've had some uh, big names on, so I feel honored to join the roster.
1: Well, listen, we we are having a big show. And I said that who would I rather have during our first week out than Tiffany Cross? You have some amazing things going on in your life i have your book here with me which we'll get into i have it up during all my hits and everything on tv say it louder i'm giving you all of that all of that publicity i possibly can i've been reading this book it's really really good y'all go pick it up we'll probably say that six times throughout the show but go pick it up comes out july 6th uh but we're gonna pre-order it now tiffany like most people say that you you probably kind of came out of nowhere to national audiences, but in D.C., you've been in the game for a while. I mean, you had the beat. Yeah. Your career, it spans almost two decades in journalism. Walk us through the arc of your career and how you came to political journalism.
2: Yeah. Well, first, let me say congratulations to you, New York Times bestseller, author, Bakari. I'm so proud of everything you're doing, and you're such an important voice right now, and I really do mean that I'm honored to join you. And uh, it is uh, just my pleasure to watch you achieve all of these things. And Team Beard, before we get <laughs> anything, I want y'all to know I'm Team Beard, Bakari. Uh, <laughs> I hope Ellen is on my team because the beard works, brother. It works.
1: <laughs> she, she is. She is. So I'm, uh, I'm letting it grow out a little bit right now, as you see. Uh, but I, we we gonna make sure, cause the you know the beard had me looking like a young sexy Marvin gay. so I'm gonna keep rocking with it for a little while. I
2: like it. I like it. <laughs> um, so I was telling career. So yeah, you know it's something that bothers me a little bit when people say you're so lucky, and this is hard work, uh, as you well know, Bukhari. This is uh, something that we have worked for since we were teenagers. So I've been in journalism since I was 15 years old. Literally, I used to write a column for a major daily newspaper. Um, I've worked in radio. Um, And then I uh, my start, my big start was when I was with CNN and I was with CNN in the Atlanta World Headquarters and they relocated me to D.C. uh, 20 years ago. So I've been working in this field a long time. Uh, I was brought to D.C. to help cover Capitol Hill. And because I was the only me, it was a really challenging space to navigate. Um, That is thunder.
1: (laughs) Don't worry. We got a weather report going on. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, guys. We'll we'll do the best we can do here.
2: Um, So anyway, doing that um, in D.C., I just felt like maybe news wasn't for me. So after that, I stayed in television, but I took a wild path. I was all over the place. I was a freelance field producer. I worked for America's Most Wanted as a field producer. You worked, worked for, for
1: America's Most Wanted. I what's did. the wildest thing that you've ever? What's the wildest story that I didn't know this about you? Tell me a wild story from America's Most Wanted. I know you um, have some.
2: Yes, I have plenty. Um, I was a part of the Elizabeth Smart recovery story. So when she was found, I was a part of the team that helped produce the recovery. Um, I, there was so, you know, honestly, my beat was kind of sad because I did the missing and exploited kids beat. Oh, that's so nuts. I don't yeah, want yeah, I know, yeah. I know. It's sad yeah. So bad, I do
1: but, want you to know that one of the things we're going to do.
2: Say, there was ahead. a lot of happy endings. We found a lot of and recovered a lot of black children. So um, and a lot of children. Period. So it, it wasn't all a sad ending.
1: So well, this goes to your America's Most Wanted background. I'll bring you back for this episode. But me and Bill are going to do an episode on this show. Me and Bill Simmons are going to do an episode on this show. Probably and Jeffrey Tubin. So I think I need you to balance. But oh, yeah. I firmly, I firmly believe that OJ's son is the one who killed uh yeah don't look at me strange like that i i so i've been down that i've been down that dark path so we're going to do like a three-hour episode on all of these different uh conspiracy theories that we all have and we'll bring you back for your america's most wanted uh expertise there too
2: let me save i'd happy i'd be happy to do that but you guys are lawyers and i would be basing my thoughts on the fx series because (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that was you know, Courtney V. Vance was Johnny Cochran, you know. He was, was he, he, yeah, yes, so. yes.
1: So yeah, listen, yeah. Uh, Joy Reid is now moving to the former hardball slot. That's uh, what
2: I hear. MSNBC yeah. hasn't confirmed anything, but that's what I hear.
1: That's what the ru- That's what the word <laughs> on the street is. And you, you are in New York City now. I hear the thunder because you're in New York City, uh, and I hear you're going to be. I'm using air quotes here. The temporary replacement this weekend. Yeah. I'm so happy for you. Talk to me about this experience, how you feel. You know, it, it, this is an amazing slot, an amazing opportunity for you. And I'm so proud.
2: Thank you. And I'm, I'm really excited to um, keep the chair warm while, while Joy is off for the weekend. Joy has built an incredible platform. I mean, she gets over a million viewers every weekend. You know, you've been on this show um, talking about My Vanishing Country, your New York Times bestseller.
1: Three three weeks in a row. Three weeks in a row. Three weeks. Three (laughs) weeks New York Times
2: bestseller. Well-deserved. I read the book in two days, so I definitely see why. But she really has built this great platform. And I know, you know, when I was building my digital platform, the Beat DC that we recently shut down, I was excited about the merging of these two when Joy tapped me and said you should come on and talk about the content because I, journalists and journalism matter. And I think, you know, sometimes in the broadcast landscape, it's a space where they gift these platforms to people who um, are TV personalities, but not necessarily journalists. And so Joy and I have a very common path where we come from a journalism background but we've also worked on campaigns in different areas. And we are both laser focused on the rising majority of this country. So I'm excited because I think there's so much news that happens um, within our communities that get overlooked. There's so much perspective and analysis um, that gets left out of the conversation. And so I'm excited to bring that to uh, this weekend's platform. And you know, it's definitely Joy's show, uh, but I would like to bring some unique things that I do As, you know, a a longtime cable news
1: veteran. You are. You are. You're going to add your little flavor. But so so (laughs) Joy's had the show for a few years. Before Joy, it was Melissa Harris Perry. That's right. And this show has always promoted and lifted up the profiles of journalists and writers of colors, particularly black ones what does this slot mean to voices that are often overlooked by cable news during the week? I mean, tell me, I know we talked yeah. about this show a little bit, but what does it mean for, because when you look up on the screen, it's like Jason Johnson, it's yourself, it's Michael Harriet, it's Brittany Packnett yeah. and yeah. a host in the middle. Tell me what that means to be able to lift up those voices like
0: that.
2: It's so important, Bakari, because when you look at the media landscape from, you know, today all the way through since there's been television, around um, every conversation, particularly political conversation, censor white people. And so it's so important to have a platform where on AM Joy, you can have an entire two-hour platform uh, and have all voices of color and not even noticed. It's literally happened before and it really shouldn't matter, right? So you can have a Bakari Sellers and an Angela Rye and a Tiffany Cross on the platform and we all represent. Different things have a different background, different socioeconomic status, even, uh, you know, Bakari. So it's, uh,
0: <laughs> it's a,
2: a, a wide array of voices um, that happen. And I do think that's really important because when you constantly center white people um, in every political conversation, it sends the message to communities of color that perhaps your voice um, and perhaps your vote don't count. And so uh, in this moment in American history, I think that point has been punctuated for sure. And uh, it's time to expand these types of platforms and make every conversation more inclusive. So I look forward to lending my voice to that this weekend.
1: So I I am going to hit on some of the points that you just made. But before we do that, I want to talk about Say It Louder just briefly. It's your new book. It comes out July 6th. First, everybody pre-order the book now at TiffanyDCross.com or go to Amazon or wherever you want to go. Please pre-order this book. It's so dope. Look at the cover. Here's the cover. But also tell me what the book is about. Tell me what you want viewers or readers to take from this, listeners who hear your voice to take from this.
2: So the book touches on everything happening right now and the important role that Black voters and the media play in framing and shaping our democracy. I wrote this book as a love letter to Black people as the superheroes we are. Name a war Black people didn't fight. Name a time period in this country that Black people were not instrumental in shaping how the country looked. Name uh, uh, any part of the culture that did not originate from something Black. And so it's been so long since we have helped erect this country and the wealth we created for this country. And we've never been properly thanked or acknowledged or rewarded. And so I just wanted something in writing that celebrated our contribution, but also called to task a media landscape that excludes us, a political landscape that excludes us. And so while I wrote this book as a love letter to Black people, it is not exclusively for Black people. So we're in a space now where there's a lot of curiosity about the Black American experience. And this Mm -hmm. book certainly helps walk you through that. And it's backed up with solid data and research. But it's not a history lesson. It's not a Negro spiritual. But it is a... a, (laughs) It's I drop bars, Bakari. Okay. Oh, they, it's, a oh, look, verse. Hey, it's a dope It's
1: a dope verse. Listen. Listen. <laughs> and and I, I'm making my way through it. I really am. And it's a, it's not a, I don't want to, I hate when people say my book is an easy read, really. Cause it's yeah. like, what are we writing? Like a Dr. Seuss book here. But but your right. book is a it, it it's it's so nourishing. You want to churn through it. So you you push yourself to turn the pages. It's an easy page turner. So I'm glad about that. Before we get to this Russia story that just popped up. I want to dovetail on your book a bit. What do you think white Democrats, and I mean white Democratic candidates and operatives and journalists get wrong about black voters? And I know that answer may take up the rest of the show, but but take your time <laughs> no. in answering it because I in my introduction I talked about one of the things I talked about was was Joe Biden having to get it right. And, you know, I have my Kamala sweatshirt on right now. And, you know, getting an African American woman and having a black agenda and having these things. So talk about what do you think white Democrats get wrong?
2: I think white Democrats sometimes think that the term the black vote is a thing. Uh, It's not. You know, you were in your question asked, what do they get wrong about black voters? Because you know, as a black candidate and a black voter, that we are not a homogenous group of people. And so the same way that there's, you know, differences in white people, and they're the only group that get to be disaggregated. And so when you have the media landscape perpetuating this narrative that, oh, there's college educated white men feel this way, soccer moms feel this way, non-college educated women feel this way. Well, guess what? Black voters can fall under all those categories, but we are never afforded that lens. And so as long as white Democrats are dependent on a predominantly white run media landscape to understand black voters, they will continue to lose. I think this is why you have so many uh, white Democrats Target uh, these mysterious swing voters that I don't really believe exist. You know the Trump, or, the Trump
1: Obama voters are what drives me crazy. Like we're going, sp- you're going to yeah. spend all this time on a unicorn. Like why are we? Right. Why not engage the four million people who voted for Barack Obama but didn't vote for right. Donald Trump? I, I mean, didn't and, vote for Hillary yes. Clinton. Yeah.
2: Dance with the ones who rung you. And, and, you know, it it takes some peeling away the layers because even the narrative that black voters just didn't show up in 2016. Like, I've got to call bullshit on that. That's not true. Uh, I write about the uh, enormous amount of voters in Detroit who voted and literally had their votes thrown out. And so... Black voters actually did show up, but there was a lot of GOP led voter suppression. There was foreign election interference that specifically targeted black, black voters. voters. And the narrative that came away from that were black voters were the weakness. And again, that is wrong. Black voters were not the weakness, white supremacy was the weakness because well, they knew. And the, and they let's could throw capitalize down a bit. Let's drill down a little treated. bit. It
1: was, it was white college educated women who left Hillary Clinton at the altar.
2: Fifty three percent, fifty
1: three percent of white women voted for Donald Trump, and this ain't the. I don't have the audacity to know why that is, and I might need to ask somebody else that
2: question. I have an idea, but we can move on. on.
1: (laughs) Uh, Give me your honest take on how well you think the Biden campaign has reached and engaged Black voters. There was a good piece in Politico around how the Biden campaign has somewhat argued smartly focuses outreach. And even policy overtures toward what I call my mama and her friends. I love, I love that quote. It, it helps really to drill down on the on the demographic, and older Black voters. But they've publicly rejected the vocal and often younger Black voter that is demanding structural change. So, what's your political calculus? What do you how do how do you square that up? And what does the cam, what has the campaign done? And what do you think they need to be doing?
2: So uh, the campaign, I think, definitely needs some help. I think they uh, initially thought it was going to be enough that he served as President Barack Obama's number two. His, Obama All Halo. the black voters would have followed, <laughs> right, they thought that all the uh, black voters would follow him accordingly, and that's just not the case. And certainly there's some nostalgia for the Joe Biden that we knew who stood with Obama in 2008 and 2012. But we're in a different landscape. We're in post-Trump America. And so for many voters, Obama was their floor, not their ceiling. And so, you know, there was a time when we could only see the possible. And for many Black voters, that seemed out of reach. And now you have this young group of people seeing the impossible and making demands for it. And the Biden campaign has to play catch-up. And even this whole argument and discussion around uh, Senator Kamala Harris, her VP, Look, I joined some of our mutual friends and in, in pinning an op-ed about how necessary a black woman is on, on the ticket with him. But even some of the pushback around that is steeped in white supremacy. Quite frankly, you know, I understand uh, the rumor, the scuttlebutt is, you know, there may be some hard feelings from when she went after him uh, on the campaign That's trail. That's crazy to me. let I mean, let's. Let, let me just let's, say, yeah, what she said was not a lie. She and and the fact that it's like, how dare a black woman call me out when I've been so good to black people, we have to disrupt that way of thinking. (laughs) Yes, there are white allies and people who have done things, but that does not excuse different things that white people have done uh, in, in, in this system of white supremacy that many people have helped perpetuate. And now, because some people have gotten recently woke, there's still a long history of things. So we have some trust issues that we have to work through and nobody better to help mend that divide than someone who looks like us. And it's not how black are you? It is how black are your policies? Because Correct. a black woman who's not willing to adopt a comprehensive black agenda will not serve us well. So I think, you know, I hope that Joe Biden, he has some strong black women around him. So that's, um, let's, let,
1: let's handicap it. Let, yeah, let, let, okay. Handicap the chances for each of the leading black women candidates for VP Harris, mm-hmm. Demings, Rice, Bottoms, Bass, Abrams. And I don't even know if Abrams is really being vetted, but I'll let you I'll let you choose. Tell me who you think has the best chance.
2: I I think I do think Senator Kamala Harris um, and Ambassador Susan Rice are two people with with the best chances right now. I would say Senator Harris, because she has foreign policy experience. She's a formidable prosecutor, as we've seen on her historic role on the Judiciary Committee. She knows what it's like to run a national campaign. Um, She's been on the national stage for more than a decade now. She's been vetted in the public eye. She has a unique uh, Black experience uh, as a woman. She has a unique uh, experience as uh, someone of uh, Asian American Pacific Islander heritage as well. She taps into some untapped spaces that certainly warrant some attention. I think, look, and I was one of those people. I think I judged her campaign very fairly. I I judged her the same way I judged Biden's campaign and Mayor um, Pete's campaign. But looking back, what it took for her to get there was something very different than what it took for Pete to get there. And so, you know, hindsight 2020, uh, by the time she was gone, I think a lot of the people who, you know, covered her campaign and judged it, that there was some nostalgia for having this. Now, when we were left with this trio of white men, we missed having a black woman's voice. And so I think having seen what happens when we're not at the table, I think there's a wide Swath of voters who would be enthusiastic about supporting her candidacy. Now, when you get to Ambassador Susan Rice, she brings a different level um, of conversation to the field. I quite honestly don't know how many Black women would be excited about Susan Rice. However, she brings a dearth of foreign policy experience. And so I think for some of those people who are concerned about Biden's um, uh, cognitive abilities, um, he'll be the oldest president to enter office at the age of 78, having someone prepared to step into that role um, the next day, I think that Susan Rice gives them some comfort. I would just caveat that with, is she the kind of person who could fill arenas and inspire people with, you know, a wide array of the black experience, people on the south side of Chicago, yeah. the people who some are on I mean, the vineyard, you, you, you what, are, what does she do I, for them?
1: You are articulating my feelings as well, plus the fear that the Republican Party would simply Benghazi Susan Rice to death.
2: Right. And, right. you
1: know, I think I do think that, that Kamala gives you the best chance to win. I think Val Dimmings is a dark horse. I love Val Dimmings. I think she was she was bad uh doing her um she was uh, one of the impeachment managers as people yeah. well know and she did a good job but I do think she's a dark horse uh for this I you we keep talking about this did, I don't know if you read this piece but it was by Tim Alberta in political magazine it was entitled The Help and um it I was I basically-
2: definitely did not read that. <laughs>
1: Well, let me just summarize it for you uh, because it was actually, I'm going to send it to you. As soon as we get off, I'll, I'll send it to you because what it talked about was the fact that Democratic politicians, they get elected, but once their campaign is over, we're not black, we're not their governing priorities anymore. So my question to you is, why do you think Democratic politicians have been so slow to adopt or present black agendas and make black voters governing priorities the same way they do other constituencies like labor or the LGBTQ community? I mean, black voters when we ask, when Puffy or Charlemagne asked for a Black agenda, they were being rejected as out of hand. Like, how dare you? Uh, when evangelicals ask Republicans all the time, when the NRA asks Republicans or pro-life ask Republicans all the time for their agenda, why is this something that Democrats are unwilling to do?
2: I think that's a, um, an issue with us as a community, with Black people. I think because we've been so historically brutalized in this country that Black people uh, oftentimes vote out of fear. We want to know, you know, what white America is doing. We don't have the privilege of voting our passion. We don't have the privilege of, of not voting even because our favorite candidate didn't win. And so in this moment, black people are afraid we have a white supremacist in the White House. And so they're saying, "Whoa, yes. please don't make any demands of Joe Biden. We just have to get this uh, bigot out of uh, the White House, we can deal with everything later. And I'm all about creating power for black people. And so it's like look in, in the dating game, right? If you're going out with someone and if you want that ring, if you want to get married, you don't create power by giving it all away on the first day you meet him. And whoa, so in whoa, the political whoa. Tiffany, world,
1: Tiffany, whoa, slow down. In, slow in down, the political
2: landscape, <laughs> it's the same <laughs> thing. It's the same <laughs> thing. You are not you are not doing the duties of a wife on day one. Because you want power, because if, if somebody has all that, then what is the incentive? And so now black voters are saying, give it all away to the white man, man on I, the first date because he bought you dinner. No, I don't know, I don't aspire to that. Listen, I wanna pay I, a me, Ellen, me and Ellen me and Ellen
1: we fell in love on the first 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 night. I knew I knew what it was on the first night. You know, I gave her I gave her husband material on the first night. I don't yes. maybe that's maybe that's rare.
2: Well, I read that part of the book, Safari, <laughs> and uh I think you worked for Ellen. We
1: worked uh, we worked hard. We're <laughs> mo- moving right along. Moving right along.
0: Uh
1: you in your uh your part of the Washington Post clip, you noted that uh or your, your agenda, you noted that we need a m- more comprehensive black agenda. What do you think is missing from Joe Biden's agenda? I mean, other than it's a, a lot, but what do you think is missing? From so I, I think
2: the the biggest thing that seems to be out of step with you know that the they're not reading the tea leaves, perhaps, is um, his role and and his concerns and comments of around law enforcement. Um, I, I think yeah, I mean they're something- adding
1: they're adding three hundred million dollars and adding yeah. more more police, and it just seems to be uh, they're swimming upstream for no apparent reason.
2: Right. Because the people that you're trying to appeal to, they left the party a long time ago, homie. Like, you're not going to get them back. It's time to move on. So dance with the ones who have rung you. Dance with the people who resurrected your campaign. And those people are not interested in hearing about uh, an additional hundreds of millions of dollars to, to law enforcement right now. And so I think he'd be wise to be more open and even to start regurgitating some of the more progressive demands that the streets are making because the streets are talking. And they're not only talking, they're voting, but they need something to be excited about. And those people are going to go talk to the dudes on the block to get yes. them excited. They're yes. going to go talk to the dudes on campus and get them excited. That's what and I've if, been saying. if you're not giving them anything to hold on to, how can they do that? So what we're anytime we're making demands of our leaders, it's saying, help us help you. Nobody's saying we're not going to vote for you, but help make our lift that much lighter and, and, and meet us where we are. And so you know, I think these are some of the challenges when, you know, somebody has been in D.C. a long time um, and they're in their late 70s and they're running, you know, sometimes a, a campaign playbook from yesteryear. But I'm encouraged by some of the voices he has around him. He has a lot of progressive people. You know, our friend Corinne Jean-Pierre is there. And I know she echoes a lot about, right.
1: A uh, girl, Simone yeah. Corinne. He has Cedric Richmond up there. I mean, I just hope that you know, I hope they're pushing him because one of the things that I say is they give us this false choice all the time. Like, we can't criticize or push Joe Biden to be better and work like hell to get him elected. I'm like, you know, we, we can walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. I, I understand the problems that may, maybe Puff and maybe Charlemagne weren't as uh, communicative as they should have been. But their their heart was in the right place. And what they wanted for black voters and black people was in the right place. Right. If, you know, I, I hope they're listening to people like Robert Smith. You know, we're gonna have Robert Smith on the show, hopefully, in, a, in the upcoming weeks or months. And you know, he's talking about a two percent solution for Black communities in these Fortune 500 companies. So, I think that right now we need to spice up the campaign a little bit. Sometimes it can get a little bit, a little bit stale. But at the other end, you now have this story that you'll probably cover this weekend that popped up in the last week, where we've had a Russian bounty, uh, where for baby. I uh, can tear yeah. gas Americans for a photo op but was apparently silent when he was briefed that Russians were putting bounties on American soldiers and he did nothing. Why is this not a bigger story? I mean this it, it's not even through a the racial lens that most things fall through but why is this just not a are we desensitized what's going on?
2: I think a part of it is is being desensitized and I think a part of it is also just a media landscape who values access Uh, And and reporting and sometimes that access becomes it's access versus reporting, you know, can I report this and still have access and so it's really unfortunate because these are literally troops Um, lives were cost as a result of this and so all the people who have been purporting to care so much about this country, and have elevated this man under the guise of the judiciary under the guise of the military. We have to peel away those layers and say, admit that it's your racism, why you support this man, and you are so wedded to your white supremacy, you're so wedded to bigotry that you are willing to sacrifice American troops on the front line just to keep this half-witted Neanderthal in office because he uh, regurgitates the same hatred that's in a lot of people's hearts. And so you look at, and this is not the, the first time before, I mean, we have to remember he invited the Taliban to Camp David. Uh, last year. we And we just forgot about that. That story forgot, went away. I, I
1: forgot completely about that. And now, I Trying mean, he's to retwe- cover
2: him is like trying to catch confetti. And that's very much by design because he throws it all at you. Deep. And when you're that trying to deep. unpack all these things, the, the media landscape is literally too much for everybody to cover every little thing.
1: Trying to catch confetti. I'm going to steal that one. I'm going to use that one. <laughs> I just got to, I know, I know you're busy preparing for a show. So I just got a couple more questions for you before I let you go. The lessons learned from this 20... Uh, 2020 Democratic primary. If you are a black candidate, a credible black candidate, we had, I believe, three uh credible black candidates run for president this year. Um, uh, Deval Patrick, Kamala, Cory Booker. Am I missing anybody?
2: Ah, uh, Julian I'm, I'm Castro, that- definitely. I said
1: black. I- Oh, sorry. He had a real black. He actually had. He actually had a real. And you're absolutely right. It's something that you said earlier. Julian had one of the best. And I'm glad that it's kind of weird. Biden adopted his policing agenda, but still is still somewhat counterintuitive. And it's not simpatico in his own agenda. But um, mayor Bo-
2: Wayne Messam, you 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 left him him out. I didn't, no, I didn't,
1: like I didn't. Leave. You
2: did I, because I did. if we can if we can say we can talk about Mayor Pete Buttigieg, then we can talk about but, the but the Pete, black mayor. Who I
1: ran. I hear you, I hear you, but Pete did extremely well. Pete galvanized. Pete Pete shocked the world. I, I didn't forget. Pete shocked like-
2: the world because he was elevated by a predominantly white media landscape before he earned all that praise, but, so, and so but, they but, became. But Pete uh, is also. A forgone-
1: I hear you, but Pete's also really talented too. Though I mean, we can't. We he can't has get, talent.
2: I'm not. De- I'm not denying that. But there are a lot of talented people. No, uh, I, in I the wholeheartedly field. agree. I, I mean, that.
1: I I yeah. think that I think that that Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum should have run for president of the United States if Beto and Pete. Agreed. Can run, if Beto and Pete can run for the United, remember Beto? Do you remember Beto O'Rourke? It was a guy who was really eloquent uh, and really had all of this charisma, and he came out and said he was born to do it, and then he fell off the side of the yeah Earth. Yes, so,
2: I remember. But what? <laughs>
1: For black people who want to be president, what do you think the lessons were from the 2020 Democratic primary for how black candidates should yeah. operate moving forward if they want to run for president? What does Corey have go to do? Hard,
2: go, go hard or go home. You know, I think, you know, some of the um, challenges, like when Senator Cory Booker, who I adore. OK, I think he's, uh, you know, an amazing senator. But he did come out, you know, talking about love and, you know, he yeah. couldn't call Donald Trump a racist. And he said, you know, wars. Um, We have to, like, shine our love on this to shine out the hate. And listen, by every metric in history, wars are not won with love. They are won with fight. And so I think at a time where we were facing the devil and you, you know, come out and say, well, we can only kill them with love. And, you know, Black people have tried that before. And I think in this moment, Black people were ready to fight. And so as Black candidates come out, you saw what just happened recently, Black progressives uh, unseated some long-term uh, congressional yes. members, and, and so Charles it's Booker a came new electorate. Close.
1: Charles Booker it's came close. Very
2: close, very close. And had he had a fraction of the money that McGrath had, he would have won, I, b- I believe. And so, or
1: one more it, week, if he would have had one more week, right. he would have won. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So My- yeah, we we have to we have to be ready to go to go hard.
1: So before we get out of here, what one more question? Everybody, go get say it louder: Black voters, white narratives, and saving our democracy a forward by our boy Michael Eric Dyson. The Dr. Dr. Mike, Doctor Michael Eric Dyson. <laughs> this is a really good book. I'm so excited. We got a bunch of copies around the house that we've ordered. I can't wait till they Thank ship you. on July 6th. We're going to get you to sign them all. I'm giving these out for Christmas gifts, y'all. Love it. No Louis Vuitton do you, do gifts. Do you
2: read them? Do you read them to the twins?
1: The books? Your yes. This book? I. I you yes. know what? I probably should start. I'm going to pick yep. up. We've been reading a lot. You know, it, <laughs> it's hard, man, because I think one of the books that I'm going to do in the near future is a children's book. Um, and one oh, of the
2: reasons I love that Bakari. I yeah, hope you do that.
1: One of the reasons is that it's really hard to find images of black and brown children on TV for your and, and reading for your children. I mean, people are writing books about purple people and shit like that. I mean, I, I you know, no I want comments. them to, yeah, I want them to have something. So before I let you go, talk to me about the Senate map. It looks increasingly like the Democrats may flip it. May, fingers crossed. Yeah. What races are you watching? Where are you watching? I like Ralph Warnock. That's an uphill battle. I like Jamie Harrison, uphill battle. I think Cal Cunningham in North Carolina will win. But what are you looking at?
2: So definitely Jamie Harrison. I mean, definitely McGrath, quite honestly. I mean, Mitch McConnell is the devil. So somebody has to topple him. So I'm waiting to see what happens there. But I'm interested that you said Jamie Harrison is an uphill battle. Because I feel like he has a lot of momentum in South Carolina. I I will tell you
1: this. I will tell you this. As somebody who's run statewide before, Jamie Harrison is running the absolute best campaign of any person running statewide in South Carolina, in the history of South Carolina as a Democrat.
2: Why is it an uphill battle against Lindsey because, Graham?
1: Because, simply because of the demographics here in South Carolina. It's a very, it's a much older electorate. It's a um, it's a very white, old electorate. Uh, one of the things that has to happen is Joe Biden has to run closer here. He It can't be a 20 point spread here. You just can't make it up. But Jamie's doing It has to be perfect headwinds and Jamie's doing absolutely everything correct to catch those headwinds. And so I'm encouraging everybody to give because if everything is hitting on all cylinders, one of the people who can ride that wave is Jamie Harrison.
2: I'm trying to encourage people that it's not such an uphill battle, but I'm not there on the ground. So I hope it's uh, I hope he has a tailwind because in, in, outside of South Carolina, it certainly seems like he does. I'll tell you an uphill battle, but I'm also watching is uh, Mike Espy in Mississippi. I think that's Mississippi a, is so that's a little bit.
1: That's a little bit more steep than even South Carolina. But I love I Mike know, Espy.
2: I know. I just want to remind the people that the sitting senator, Cindy Hyde Smith, tells lynching jokes. And Mississippi has a huge black electorate and there's no and it, the way it was designed. It was designed to dilute the power of uh, the, the huge amount of black voters there. And so I just I think in this moment where we're seeing the impossible, I realize that his Senate race might be close to impossible, but not out of reach. And I, I, if, if we keep believing that things are, are not within our grasp, then it penetrates of, of what we think is possible. So I am rooting Mike Espion in Mississippi.
1: So, what races do you think we gonna win? What tell me the ones that you know, Jamie like, Harrison?
2: I, I'm out, shocked that you said it's a tough battle. Because I don't. I mean, I don't think it's impossible.
1: I don't think it's impossible. I'm not saying I'm supporting him, man. I'm giving him money and doing everything else. I'll do absolutely anything Jamie asked me to do. I just think that as you list, as you lay out targets, I mean, you look at Kelly and Arizona. Uh, I
2: think I think Kelly is going to win for sure because of just changing demographics in Arizona that we don't talk about a lot. But they have a um, ever increasing latinx demographic correct um and we've already seen evidence of when people um vote in arizona how they can uh change hickenlooper
1: hickenlooper and, and and uh and, and um colorado it's not the most exciting it's not the most exciting candidate but no
2: but that's a purple state and it matters and so. it does matter
1: and guard we got yeah. i mean we got to start flipping some of these so see these are some of the races that that i i think that democrats will put a check by and if we're able to garner that that headwind i think that the races and down ballot
2: to- matters. Like we don't talk oh, no down question. ballot enough. So no yeah, the Senate matters for sure. And that's yeah. why the top of the ticket matters so much, because you need people to get inspired to come out and vote down ballot. So I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Oh, I, I'm I putting change. my money on it though. Jamie Harrison for sure. Like if I, I put money on it, I, I think he can do it. I really
1: do. Uh, well, listen, I, I put money on it. I put my five on it. <laughs> and so me and my wife are put money on it. We, we go businesses, the businesses I own are writing checks to Jamie. So we put not, awesome. we put our money on it. Uh, I, I it. want you to come back in a couple of weeks. We're going to have a few on Thursdays. We, we like to like to rotate guests with brilliant people. Next Thursday we have well, I say brilliant people, but next Thursday we got Jason Johnson, so I guess we, you oh, know, well. Yeah, yeah, we're doing be the best. We're slummin' we
2: be. it. Yes, I'm
1: gonna tell him you said that, but I just want to say thank you. I'm so excited. I'm I am one of your biggest fans, and I love your work, and thank I appreciate you. your time. Thank you so much, Tiffany Cross. Everybody, go pick up, say it thank louder: you. "Black Voters, White Narratives, and Saving Our Democracy." Thank you for coming by the Bakari Sellers podcast. Make sure you download, subscribe, and on Monday, our next episode we have Antoine Jameson and. Vince Carter together with me we're having an amazing dialogue about black fatherhood black sports and activism thank you to everybody at the ringer and Spotify this is another episode in the books of the Bukhari Sellers podcast